0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The 2018 World Cup has been nothing but exciting. Close games, upsets, star power. It's been a thrill a minute. We're going to talk about what happened today and this weekend. The number to call if you want to chime in is 312-923-9239. And if you have a tournament favorite right now, let us know who it is. Brazil was plenty strong this morning as they moved on against Mexico. 312-923-923. 9239 is the number to call. With me in the studio is veteran World Cup analyst at Worldview, Pavel Youssef. Great to see you, Pavel.
1: Uh, Good to be here.
0: And by day, he's the executive director at CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. But a huge soccer fan in his time off, Ahmed Riyab, nice to see you. Thanks for coming in.
2: Pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, You know... You did um, a little work this weekend. You were out at the immigration protests that happened on Saturday, right while I know your beloved France team was playing on television. Mm -hmm. Um, What happened out there? What did you see on Daily Plaza?
2: There are a few things that matter to me more than the World Cup, but this is definitely one of them. This amazing rally that basically brought out 75,000 Chicagoans in this dead heat to protest The situation at the border where families are being ripped apart, children being taken from the arms of their parents and being put into buses and cages and taken to court and the travel ban and all of the other policies that the Trump administration have brought out uh, motivated by fear of the other, mostly on the basis of religion and race. So that's what we protested. And the message was very strong. It brought in not just people of color, but, you know white Christians and everybody else. It was an American unified cry for social justice and for the principles that we ought to live up to, not the ones that we just talk about. Uh, What did you do about the France game? Did you tape it? How did you handle this thing? I honestly, while I stood backstage, uh, peered into my phone (laughs) as often as I could uh, in in the uh, glare of the sun. And caught some of the amazing goals in that game. Uh, Mbappe was just superior. <laughs> I, I've got to say, and Pavel, um, what do you think of France right now?
0: They look like the Mbappe shows so much star power. They've got uh, such a powerful squad. They finally seem to be getting better every game.
1: Yeah, they they look like they have an amazing arsenal. Look like they were using some of it in the group, and now they're using more of it. And I don't. That's what it looks like right now. I mean, I think they can totally lose to Uruguay. It's completely possible. But right now, they look like they just have so many weapons, kind of uh, offensively and defensively. Like Pogba and Kante are just—they seem very hard to get by. And at the same time, they've got these forwards, Mbappe and Griezmann and uh, Giroud, and they're all so different and they're all so dangerous. Uh, it does—after that game, it really does look like it's their tournament to lose.
0: And Uruguay, forgive me if I'm wrong, but they seem a little weak in the midfield. I mean, they got the great strikers. They're fine in the back end, but the, um, I don't know where they are in the midfield. And But, man, they can score when they get the ball up there.
2: I would agree with you. I mean, their strength is in their defense, which is considered to be one of the strongest defenses in the wor- world game, in the national team games. Um, and their forwards, of course, you have Cavani and Suarez, two Strikers that can convert any opportunity into a goal. Uh, the midfield seems to be the weak point, but in comparison to the strong defense and the strong offense, not in an absolute f- w- sort of term. So, I think it's a strong team that can go all the way. But I would still
1: pip France to beat Uruguay, nonetheless. Right. I think this is a this is like a, a test, like a seaworthiness test for France. They haven't had to really pass one yet. Uh, Spain failed one yesterday, and France will have to. That's going to be their big test if they can't beat Uruguay. Uh, I don't expect it to be easy by any means, but they really should be able to do it if they're going to be the world champions.
0: The number to call a weigh in on the World Cup is 312-923-9239. Let's talk about the Russia upset because this was the one game I thought I didn't have to watch this weekend, to tell you the truth. (laughs) And I watched the first 10 minutes. I th- Spain seemed to have things in hand. It was one nothing when I left for church,
1: and then a, I come home and it's the biggest upset of the tournament. And you come home and it's still going on, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it was um, strange, and it was I thought that Spain was going to be up to nothing after 25 minutes or so, and then the job will be done, and it really won't matter what the final score is. It's just the job will be done, and they were halfway there, and I was like, well, okay, this one's going to be like mildly entertaining. And, uh, well, it was not entertaining at all. At the end, it was probably the most boring game I've ever seen. Spain essentially just trying to pass the ball to each other somewhere around the center circle, getting a little bit closer. Um, And, uh, well, I think Spain lost it. They really lost the game. Russians did not make any mistakes, um, if they did, I think Spain probably would have punished them, even though I'm not even sure about it. Well, well not- the
2: only exception is the, is the Spain goal that Russia scored for them. So Spain couldn't even score its own goal. That's how
1: poorly they performed. Yeah, n- not even in the penalty stage, really. Yeah. Like, they really struggled. I think they were like, well— is that what we got to do? But the writing was on the wall. I mean, if you look at the group stage and
2: how Spain performed there, um, they, they weren't coming together as a tight team. And part of that can perhaps be attributed to the fact that they fired their coach that led yep. them through qualifications just two days before the World Cup and brought in a new coach. A um, big controversy there. But also, you got to give credit to the spirit, to the heart that the Russian team had. Um, they're not up there in terms of talent or skill. Everybody knows that. They're not terrible, but they're not up there. But it was the heart that filled that gap and took them through, and of course, the twelfth man—the the, the huge support they got from the audience, the home home uh, home crowds in the stadium. Uh, Russia's got to be the
0: most unlikely team in the tournament right now. Uh, what was the turn before the tournament? They were uh, two shots on goal in two whole games. They they, they didn't look
1: like the, you know their rank, their world ranking was
0: nothing, and now they're right. uh, in the semifinals.
1: Right, and then well, I, I think partly it's the story, right? These things happen sometimes, and. We forget about them, but then when it's the host and it's an unlikely host, it's like everything sort of comes together. And to me, like the cool thing about this, no matter what happens, I mean, they get they can get Croatia could potentially just wipe the field with them, you know, in a few days easily. What happens to me? What what I think is cool is like this potential for myth creation. There's all these boys, Russian boys, who are 10 now, and they're probably just odd they they're 10 so they don't know that the team is not very good uh we know that they they don't know that i i used to be that boy when i was 10 um zen at st petersburg won their only soviet title i think they won their next title with Gazprom money 20 years later so it was just a miracle and i don't think that team was very good now but of course then i thought it was amazing and it's just i think that's to me that's Probably the, the most interesting story. Yeah, you,
2: you were born in, in Russia, Pavel, and so was my wife. And she watched the game with her friends at my house. So there was definitely a party at my house. I wasn't really part of it. Um, and of course, the head-to-head game in the group stages between Egypt and Russia was a very awkward family moment. And needless to say, uh, I didn't have to sleep on the couch because we lost.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been a great tournament for Russia. Here they are in the semis. They're going to battle Croatia now, who had a very tight and great game against Denmark. It very, was very nervous Very nervy.
2: Very nervy. The game of the goalies
0: and uh, Croatia. Uh, should I be more impressed with Croatia? I, I feel like they don't <laughs> quite um, they don't quite knock me out as right. as, as some, they do some people. They think they're going to be the right. and and they could very well in this bracket
1: be the guys who are the champions. Right. Well, I mean, they passed. That's the way I see it. There was again, there was a test and they they squeaked by. This is this is one of those where you take like a placement test in college. You need to get like a seventy to place out, and you get, like, 71. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's kind of what it is. They, they passed. I, I think they have to be better than this. And then the Danes, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the Danes. They were pretty good. They were dangerous, and they, they pressed really high. I think the Croats weren't really ready for it. They're like, we're just trying to pass the center circle here. Why are all <laughs> these, like... Red shirt's up in here. Like, I'm not ready for this. And it took them a long time. They they got better at the end, I think. So, overall, they really should have been able to win it, if not in 90, then in 120 minutes. But, um, yeah. Well, well, if you think about it, and you have
2: most, a lot of the big teams are out. You know, Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands never made it. Uh, Argentina and Spain and Portugal are are all out. So, really, Brazil is the big team left, and then France has a chance, and perhaps England. But for me, the dark horse, more than Croatia, I'll go out on a limb and say Sweden. Because if you're thinking about where's Italy... One word. Sweden. Where's the Netherlands? One word. Sweden. Where's okay. Germany? One word. Sweden. So really, Sweden <laughs> has been the team that, you know, and not a lot of people notice that. So Sweden is a team not to be ruled out. Because right, they don't look like vaccine. much, right? Yeah, they don't right. look
1: like much. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you do have a point. I, I guess the thing is that it's not clear why. Right. But why are they so successful?
0: Knows <laughs> Latin. <laughs> <Yeah. Nose> <laughs> Maybe that's why. I'm talking with uh, Pavel Yusum and Ahmed Riyab, and we're talking World Cup soccer. If you're interested in talking about the World Cup with us, give us a call. 312-923-9239 is the number. Call us. Talk about that. your favorite in the World Cup. In the in the bra- and how's your bracket doing? um so does anybody give columbia or england a shot here i mean they're they're going to play each other and um england looks pretty interesting
2: uh, they've scored a lot of goals england is england they always find a way not to make it to the end although they have a chance i have to say they have a chance this year they have kane who's right on target most of the time and a team that plays well together a coach they like and
1: a fairly easy bracket so this is their year to go all the way if they can get their act together Right. The way I see England is that um, they're always just just basically shrinking from the pressure, and the squad is always just so nervous. And I don't see it this year. So to me, that means that maybe there are like four World Cups from winning one. <laughs> so maybe not this time, but they should be able to make a splash. Sweden will be their big test, I think. There yeah. you
0: go. It's, a, it's a Sweden again, the, the dragon killer. Uh, and then in the in the this morning, um, Brazil beating Mexico. Uh, Brazil looks solid. They they really uh, attack and they they get the ball in the net once in a
1: while. And they're improving too. I think that's one yep. of the key things. There are some teams here that we've seen who that seemed better at the beginning and then kind of lost the plot as they went along. And Brazil seems to be just just better. I mean, they really. I, th- I think Mexico played well. They played their game. They played well. They were dangerous, and that was okay. By the Brazilians. They were fine.
2: Brazil has the experience more than anybody else. Um, One team we have not talked about yet is Belgium, and that's Brazil's next challenge. And in my opinion, that's sort of an early final because it's really two of the best teams in the tournament. Belgium being, to me, a clear favorite to win it, given the talent on the pitch. On paper, just, so just
1: on paper, right? Yeah, with the lineup, right? right. You they, don't, they think don't have about the all, the, and right. all that, but
2: um, they, they could go all the way. They have young players, they have players that are extremely talented on an individual level, but they play well as a team, so they have all of the formula to go all
1: the way.
0: I think they're at the top of Alexei Lawless's power rankings. Uh, <laughs> the,
1: oh, is that right? On yeah. TV. yeah, well, I'm, I guess that's also on paper. Yep, I I gotta say, because uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. I don't know if they they have it. They're going to have it against Brazil. I think they're going to have it against Japan. I, I just don't see, I, I shouldn't say that. I actually have, I have my little bracket here on my phone and uh, I have Belgium in the quarterfinals in the bracket and I've had to amend the bracket before and uh, I'm hoping I'm not going to have to do it again well, at 3 p.m. today.
2: there a lot of surprises so I wouldn't be too surprised with anything at this point. Do you have a
0: tournament favorite player right now, an MVP of the tournament, Pavel?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I think I'm I guess I'm really, just like everybody else, I'm really impressed by, by Mbappe. And uh, perhaps N'Golo Kante, a guy in his position never wins MVP because he's somewhere in the back winning second balls. But he's just unbelievably important. And productive so
2: it's form. nice to see a Netherlands free Pavel shift over to my <laughs> boat, France. Yep. I, I actually usually <laughs> do, but there's no
1: Netherlands I, sh- I
2: but it's but it's earned. I mean, they're playing yes. really well, and Bappi indeed is is a sight to behold. is is only nineteen, um, the youngest player in the tournament. That. He looks he looks older. He does not. He look does, 19. And, and he plays like an older player. But I think he's the only player since Pele to score two goals in the quarterfinals, and it's nineteen. So in the next World Cup, he'll he'll still be younger than Mo Salah was in this World Cup. So yes. he has he has a long future ahead of him.
0: When you make a splash like this and you're 19, uh, it's really stunning. And he seems like he's on a motorboat or something
2: out there. He's so fast the with the ball. acceleration is ridiculous. Yeah, I wouldn't rule out Neymar yet for, for MVP, though.
1: Ne- Neymar is really good. I mean, he's really the heart and soul of the team. And, you know, we saw what happened four years ago when Neymar was injured. They sort of lost the plot completely. They were just rudderless against Germany. Um, I mean— Granted, Germany probably still would have won. <laughs> but, that was a uh, weird game. Yeah, that was a, maybe it would have been less weird if Neymar was there. But but still, like they really depend on him. They go, everything goes through him. So,
2: and if he, Belgium goes all the way, De Bruyne might emerge as an MVP for the
1: tournament. Right, he hasn't had to yet. Right, I, that's, it's kind of similar with England. Like Harry Kane scored five goals, great. He didn't Tap really have to. <laughs> right, penalties, two yeah. penalties. He didn't have to. He could have scored one, and they would have been just exactly where they are. Right. So it's not clear yet. Those teams are still a mystery. How
0: are you guys feeling about the video replay? It seemed that a lot of people thought Spain got ripped off in the Spain-Russia game, um, and it's been a factor.
1: Uh, it has been a lot more penalties, for one thing. So the number of the number of goals scored on penalties, the, the, the share of goals scored on penalties has gone up. And I don't know if I like it. But then again, I, I, I think to me what VAR really does is expose how many problems there are with... Officiating mm-hmm. in the sport, um, I mean, TV is exposed exposed to us, the fans. For you know, twenty twenty years ago, probably we knew. Yeah. But now it's like everybody knows. Now referees are stuck with this. Now they're just as bad as anybody else. Now it's like, oh, he's making a bad decision having seen it from all the angles. And he decided that, well, holding in the box is actually okay, while the other guy is like, no, holding in the box is completely out. And that's that's what I always feel like. I mean, for me, it
2: was you know like any football traditionalist. Anything new to the game kind of unsettles me. So – at first, my first impression was that it, it rips the emotion out of the game. I, I like the sort of instantaneous feel of a goal and the fact that it's a goal, whether it was a goal or not, we're still celebrating. Or if it's not a goal, then we're grieving. But now it's sort of like, oh, hold your emotion. Let's check yes. the technical teams. <laughs> yeah, did you, did the you see the Koreans?
1: And... After that was their first goal. They were standing around yeah, waiting, waiting for, the for Exactly, waiting w- whether and or not And then to they cheer. started celebrating. That's not, not how football works. Right. <laughs> Usually the guy scores and he runs from the opposing team's goal like to the sideline. He slides. This was different. They were like by center circle, just hanging out. And all of a sudden there's a goal and they all just swarm their own bench. It becomes
2: very academic. However, throughout the tournament, it's grown on me as I've seen how it has helped bring the right call uh, to the fore. So in the past, we've all complained about people being ripped off and teams being ripped off. But at this point, I think less and less of that is happening. So it's growing on me.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think in in all sports seem to be adopting it and getting used to the waiting at which… Which didn't previously happen, which is is just something that's uh getting to be a part of the game. Wait right. for the call. It's right. it is right. less romantic though, that's for sure. <laughs> yep. uh, we're talking about World Cup and the twenty eighteen World Cup. It's been a terrific World Cup so far. With me is Pavel Yusim and Ahmed Riyab. And um what, how do you feel like the World Cup is playing in the United States this time around? Be, because it's always uh, something of a second fiddle to whatever other sports thing is going on in this country, but it's sure a lot more available, and people seem to be enjoying it more and more. People well, well, go to and you know, watch it in public more and more. Lots more parties than there used to be. Are people are people in the U.S. kind of starting to get the fever?
1: Well, it's uh, I guess without the U.S. in there. I mean, I I feel like that the fever was really there last time because of the U.S. And now it's, it's a lot more subdued, but, like, every bar is playing it. You're walking by. I was at the airport, uh, Logan Airport in Boston, um, when some games were going on, and every bar at Logan was playing it. So it's... It's not as bad as
2: I thought it might not, have been. Not, exa- yeah, that's kind of I what I'm trying Yeah, not nearly yeah, as bad when, when as I was afraid when we failed to qualify, you know, I, I was sad for my country, but also for the fact as a football fan that I felt, oh, we're not going to get the same coverage or the same kind of atmosphere in the United States watching the World Cup, did, did watching you, other countries. have painful memories from the early 90s just kind of yes, come rushing? Yes, exactly. <laughs> However, it's 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 not been as bad, although I will say that it adds salt to injury that Panama, the team that took our place, ended up finishing dead last in the tournament. tournament Yeah, what does that say about U.S.?
1: Well, we're the 33rd best team in the world. (laughs) What can I say?
0: And uh, so here here we are with the tournament uh, coming down to the wire, though, and it's been so great and so entertaining. And your pick for the tournament, Pavel, is now who? It's France, right? I mean, it's France's tournament. I guess it's
1: France. Yeah, I think it's their tournament to lose. I think they... The way I saw them, it's like I keep thinking, well, if they beat Uruguay, but they really should be able to beat Uruguay. I think they can totally beat Brazil. They're better than Brazil in sort of every way. So, yeah, definitely France. Better than Brazil in every way. Vive la
2: France. Vive la France. Vive la République. For me, while, you know, Egypt is gone, Senegal is gone, so France is my team. However, in terms of a prediction, I'm going to have to go with Belgium.
0: Wow. So Belgium is better than Brazil in every way, too.
2: I would say they would beat Brazil in, in, in the next game, assuming Belgium go through Japan. And assuming when I said Sweden, by the way, just not to offend any fans, they still have to go through Switzerland to play England, <laughs> and England has to go through Colombia. So it's not a done right. deal.
0: All right. Ahmed Riyab and Pavel Yusum, thanks for joining us and talking a little bit about the exciting World Cup, all the action we saw this weekend and, and the, the upcoming action as well. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of the games, guys. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about Puerto Riconstruction and talk with a comic book writer, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. He made a comic book to help support Puerto Riconstruction. I'm Jerome McDonnell, you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. We You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Each Monday during hurricane season, Worldview presents a series called Puerto Reconstruction. Three million American citizens on Puerto Rico face catastrophe many months after Hurricane Maria. Each week, we'll discuss life in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and the recovery efforts. We'll also debate issues that matter to our fellow citizens on the island and to Chicago's Puerto Rican diaspora. This week we chat with writer and graphic designer Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. He's the man behind La Boricania, the Puerto Rican superheroine who first appeared a couple years ago. Edgardo's teamed up with DC Comics to feature La Boricania in the new anthology, Reconstruction, Reminiscing, and Rebuilding Puerto Rico, where she teams up with DC favorites including Wonder Woman, Superman, and Aquaman to rebuild Puerto Rico. Proceeds from the comic go to Hurricane Recovery in Puerto Rico. Edgardo is also part of our recent series, Beyond Black Panther, featuring conversations with pathbreaking Black and Latinx comic book writers. You can see the work and hear from these artists on our special webpage at wbez.org slash worldview slash comics. Thanks a lot for joining us, Edgardo. Thank you so much for having me. We've been interested in hearing stories of people who create comic books and comic book characters and getting to the roots of how they got where they are. What's your story here? I mean, Labori Kenya, it kind of came as an outgrowth of your whole lifetime in graphic representation.
3: She actually came to me literally two years ago. This May is actually uh, makes two years since uh, the idea press conference here in New York City as part of the uh, National Puerto Rican Day Parade. Uh, Just prior to that, I was approached by the apparatus, an institution, uh, and they had let me know that I was going to be honored for being a writer. At the time, I had just produced a a short story for an anthology series for Marvel Comics, Guardians of the Galaxy. And prior to that, I had produced the graphic novel series, uh, DMC, with uh, legendary hip-hop icon himself, Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC. But when they reached out to me and honoring me for their um, event, I felt kind of taken aback because I really didn't feel that accomplished. I said, well, I've only written, you know, one short story. And although this is an institution that celebrates the best of the Puerto Rican community, I thought, well, I haven't even had an opportunity to do anything yet. So I gave them an idea. I said, listen, I would like to use this as an opportunity to introduce something completely new. Give me some time, and I'm going to get back to you with this uh, proposal. So I literally went into my studio, and I started sketching out some ideas, looking over uh, a few articles, literally looking at the map of Puerto Rico, because I was very concerned about the economic debt crisis that had hit Puerto Rico. And just prior to that announcement of being honored at this event, late the year before, in 2015, the then-governor Padilla of Puerto Rico had declared that this debt was not going to be paid, and there was just no way it was going to be paid. And this was a debt that had been accumulating since 2006 when um, President Clinton um, closed Tax Code 936, a tax code that had literally boosted the Puerto Rican economy since the 1970s when it was first introduced. And once these uh, pharmaceutical industries started um, leaving the island in droves, the economy started to crash. And I felt that this was much more than an economic discussion. It was a humanitarian crisis that was affecting a lot of Puerto Ricans on the island, the 3.5 million American citizens. And in 2005, there were already 3.8 million Puerto Ricans on the island, kind of like the largest amount of Puerto Ricans that have actually lived on the island. And this closing of the tax code inevitably led to uh, an exodus. Over the course of those 10 years, between 2006 and 2015, Puerto Rico saw a decline of about a quarter of a million Puerto Ricans that were leaving to the mainland United States. And I came up with this idea, La Borinquena, and I thought to myself, well, you know what? We're living in an era where everyone's really, 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 really enjoying superhero culture. And not just in comics, but like on the big screen or in video games and in apparel. Everything from fruit roll-ups to cereals have a superhero character on it. And I thought to myself... What an amazing opportunity to use a character to address real-world social issues. No intergalactic threat, but a real issue affecting real Americans, real people. And that's where the idea of La Kenya* came from.
0: What do, you, what do you think took so long to get to that spot? I mean, even in your own career, in, in other people's careers, why didn't that happen?
3: Well, because there aren't any brown people making comics. I think that's just the reality. It's just like the same question can be asked, why aren't there more um, women represented in the superhero genre? Because there aren't women in comics. Uh, overwhelmingly, um, comic books, just like other entertainment industries, like film or publishing, are overwhelmingly um, run by white men. And uh, with the exception of a few You have George Perez, who in the 1970s co-created The White Tiger, a Puerto Rican superhero for Marvel Comics. Uh, That character was steeped in um, Eastern um, mythology. it was a martial arts um, superhero. But prior to that, or even after that, there really wasn't a character that proudly exclaimed or proudly embraced its heritage. And uh, that's the real reason. There just weren't enough people of color in the industry that could really kind of like have the opportunity to create. For the most part, those people of color who are in the industry are creating stories or art for stories that they themselves didn't write. Or they're creating characters that have existed for decades.
0: How did you get into the industry?
3: I kind of pushed the door open and made my way on my own because I realized that. The way the industry works, uh, you have to work within the editorial division of these publishing companies, and it takes a lot of time for a new character to be introduced because it's part of a larger strategy. The characters don't exist in Marvel or DC in a vacuum. They exist as part of a, a larger, continuous narrative. And I thought to myself, with the experience I've already had working with DMC and working with Marvel, and as also a graphic designer for almost 20 years, I thought I had the professional enough experience to Art direct and develop my own project. And with the resources that I had, I did just that. And given the the era that we're in right now with access to social media and an opportunity to engage people in a completely different way, literally the opportunity to engage consumers directly, I was actually able to do that and continue to do that. And that's the real reason how this happened, because I decided to do it myself. I didn't go the traditional route of pitching an idea to a publishing company. I was very aware of the humanitarian crisis affecting Puerto Rico, and I knew that something dire and quick needed to happen immediately. And if I had the resources to do it, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do anything.
0: Well, it sounds like you really care about the history and people of Puerto Rico. And um, how did you bring all that into the character of Labor in Kenya?
3: What I wanted to do was introduce a character, a young woman, Marisol Rios de la Luz, who was learning about her heritage and learning about what that meant as a young person. One of the things I've always loved about my days as a college student was it was an opportunity for me to expand my own consciousness, develop my own philosophies, my own view of the world. Up until that point, everything was shaped by my family. But on the campus, I was actually there experimenting, debating, kind of like, fine-tuning my arguments. And I thought to myself, this is a perfect place for a character to be introduced because I didn't want to create a character with the history and the knowledge that I already have as a 47-year-old man. I wanted to create a character that was less than half my age that was finding herself. I wanted to create a story that was truly about finding oneself in the midst of a real world. And by doing so, I could engage the readers, all readers, no matter what their backgrounds were in terms of how they viewed Puerto Rican culture, history, or not, or whether they were Puerto Rican at all. I truly wanted to create a narrative that really touched on the points of what the human condition really are. And in doing so, trying to create a universal narrative that any of us, can relate to. I relate to Superman even though I'm not from Krypton. I relate to Captain America even though I'm not from the 1940s or a blue-eyed American. Um, I relate to these characters because these stories are are well told and that's what I hope to do with my character, with La Borinquena.
0: I'm talking with Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. He's the man behind Laboring Kenya, the Puerto Rican superhero who first appeared a couple of years ago. She's teaming up with a lot of superheroes from DC Comics in a project called Reconstruction. It's reminiscing and rebuilding Puerto Rico. Its proceeds all go to reconstruction in Puerto Rico. You know, there is so much Puerto Rican history that most people in the United States don't know about. It seems like your character is a vehicle to bring a lot of that in and I know you know it's been 120 years since the US invaded Puerto Rico and there's a lot that happened early on there and really created circumstances we're all living with today. You thought you could get all that in?
3: <laughs> I will eventually get it all in. And the book allows me the platform to be on your show to talk about these issues and this history. It allows me the opportunity to speak at universities, at cultural institutions like the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. And that's exactly what I set out to do with this character. The character herself wasn't going to... Have page after page of her monologuing about the decolonization of Puerto Rico, but rather serve as a platform and a conduit to allow me to have these conversations. And in, in an organic way within the story, have her face what it is to be an undergraduate student dealing with a university system on the island of Puerto Rico that is being crippled by these austerity measures. Uh, if she's a visiting student from New York City expecting to take classes, she's not going to have those same resources that students on the island themselves are being stripped of. And that's an example of how she can actually experience how these austerity measures are affecting Puerto Ricanos on the island. And one of the things that I've actually realized in the course of making this book in just the two years is the amazing history that's happening alongside this book Given the fact that last year was the 100th anniversary of the Joan Schaffer fact, given the fact that this year, just as you mentioned, is the 120th anniversary of the invasion of Puerto Rico, since Puerto Rico has become a territory of the United States, our history, as Americans, is intrinsically with Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rican history is American history. So many people are unaware, for example, that birth control pills that we have right now would not exist were it not for Puerto Rican women that were experimented on in Puerto Rico. The sugar industry that exists and inevitable leading of Hawaii becoming um. A state wouldn't have existed were it not for the sugar cane industry that existed for hundreds of years in Puerto Rico, because Puerto Ricans were literally flown across the United States to Hawaii to farm and grow sugarcane. So a lot of this stuff is intrinsically a part of our American history, just as uh, internment camps for the Japanese Americans, just as Tuskegee experiment in slavery for African Americans. So it's important to engage in these conversations because if we as a nation are going to grow and, and expand and celebrate our diversity and celebrate what it is to be an American, that we have to also acknowledge and reflect on where we came from, and do our best to not repeat this history. And what we're living through right now is a very interesting time, because since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, the island is still in an incredibly slow recovery. Evidently, FEMA distributed close to $3 in funds to victims of Hurricane Harvey in Texas. Um, that came out to about 250,000 people that were directly affected by Hurricane Harvey. And that comes out to about $600 per Texan. But in Puerto Rico, with the limited resources that have actually been distributed by FEMA, to the 3 million people living on the island, it's come out to about less than $2 of FEMA aid that's actually made it on an average to Puerto Rican. And that's not even a counter to the fact that most people on the island still have not received aid because they actually need electricity to log on to the FEMA website to apply for aid, which is ridiculous when you don't have electricity, let alone Wi-Fi, to actually get to your computer to do that. So we're living in a very interesting time now. And what I've been able to do with my comic book is literally bridge these two worlds, a world that is really, uh, when you're looking at comic books, is so fueled by The fight for justice, the fight for social justice, overcoming evil. But there's so much in our real lives that needs to be addressed. And that's one of the main reasons why, um, when given the opportunity to um, speak with Dan Didio, co-publisher of DC Comics, the first thing that came out of my mouth when he came to me at my table at the New York Comic Con was, what are we going to do for Puerto Rico? Anyone else in the comic book industry would have pitched or called for a pitch meeting to try to like, find their way into this major publishing industry. I said, what can I do with this publisher to do something bigger than what I've already done with my comic book? And that was the genesis of creating this anthology, uh, Reconstruction, which has over 150 contributors, both from the entertainment industry and the comic book industry, a book that's already the number one bestseller on Amazon for the last like, two months. And it's already looking at providing me the forum to, on a larger scale, to address these issues that continue to affect Puerto Rico historically, but also currently and what's happening on the island.
0: I'm talking with Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. He's the man behind Kenya, the Puerto Rican superhero who first appeared a couple years ago. She's teaming up with superheroes from DC Comics in a project called Reconstruction. After the break, we'll talk more with Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez on what his writing and characters reveal about Puerto Rico's colonial past and her diaspora. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEC. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. On Mondays during hurricane season, Worldview presents the series Puerto Reconstruction. Each week, we discuss life in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and discuss matters that are important to Chicago's Puerto Rican diaspora. Today we're chatting with writer and graphic designer Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. He's the man behind the comic superhero La Boricania, who's featured in the new anthology Reconstruction, Reminiscing and Rebuilding Puerto Rico. Edgardo, tell us more about the project. You've got her working with Aquaman, The Flash, Superman, yeah. Batman, Wonder Woman, all these other characters. This must have been a gigantic team effort. It's like a ninety-nine page book.
3: You got going actually, out. it's a, a one hundred ninety-two page book. One hundred ninety-two. So yeah, and it took me seven months to put this together. I'd never worked on a project of this scope before, and. I not only published the book, but I uh, edited the book, uh, packaged, designed it, and wrote a few stories myself. It was very uh, daunting (laughs) because I was given the opportunity to work with these iconic characters that have been around since my grandparents. You know, Superman just recently celebrated um, his 80th birthday, and... Wonder Woman was embraced internationally as a major blockbuster film just last year. So, giving the opportunity to work with these characters was incredibly intimidating, but not as intimidating as the issues affecting Puerto Ricanos on the island. So, I saw this as an opportunity because I realized that the character that I created, although she's only been around for two years, and at the time when I came up with that idea, the character was only a year and a half old, I realized that she was the only character in the comic book industry that literally was a connection to the island of Puerto Rico, an organic, natural connection. Because for the most part, most of these characters deal in fictional cities or even in uh, scenarios that take them to other galaxies. And I thought to myself, she's the only character that could literally bring these characters like Batman, Aquaman, Flash, Superman and Wonder Woman to the island of Puerto Rico. And it wasn't that I wanted to create these tales to show people how superheroes can save the day. But it was more that I wanted to create and curate these stories so that people can see and remember that these three million Puerto Ricans living on the island are a part of our nation and still need our support. And these icons have much more visibility and have so for generations than Puerto Rican history have. I mean, it was as recent as the New York Times polled Americans, and more than half Americans polled didn't even realize that Puerto Ricans were American citizens. So given the visibility these characters have, it was a perfect opportunity to not only use them for an anthology that would raise money, 100% of the proceeds towards charitable efforts on the island, but also to raise awareness. And it's a great opportunity for myself and my wife to work with these grassroots organizations on the island that are doing Incredible work and the money that we're raising with this anthology, we're excited about because we're going to be distributing grants to organizations throughout the island because we're not working with a larger institution that we're just going to give one giant check to. We're going to work with small organizations that are literally doing the work on the ground and not only need the support but need the visibility, oh. just like these heroes themselves are doing for Puerto Rico.
0: That's super cool. Tell us about some of the organizations you want to work with.
3: Well, some of the organizations that we've approached is uh, the Boys and Girls Club of Puerto Rico, an organization that actually is working directly with children in after-school programs and summer programs. Uh, some of these other organizations, uh, Departamento de la Comida, which is literally the, the Department of Food, which is an organization that actually is developing a co-op by actually growing their own produce on the island, and various organizations that are dedicated to women's health, uh, wildlife preservation. Because in looking at the character that I created myself, La as a college student, she's a an earth and environmental sciences student. And I wanted to literally use the character and what she believes in as an opportunity to raise money and raise awareness for these organizations doing the actual real heroic work on the island.
0: What are some of the storylines in uh, Reconstruction?
3: One of the ones I wrote was Wonder Woman meeting up with um, La Borinquena in El Yunque, the National Rainforest of the Island, which even to this day is still struggling to regrow itself because so much of the flora and trees have been decimated by Hurricane Maria. And I had them visit Puerto Rico and in, in the rainforest of Puerto Rico were an incredible amount of massive biodiversity in the rainforest. And what really drew my attention was the Puerto Rican parrot or the Amazon. And I thought to myself this story is literally writing itself. Wonder Woman is an Amazon, and there's a bird in Puerto Rico called the Amazon, and they actually rescue these birds and bring them to a nest that they actually create. A simple little tale like that reminds us all that every life is valuable, as small as the hatchling to as large as the entire family. And other stories that were written address the personal narratives that many people contributed. Uh, Many people talked about their families that were lost. Many people talked about their ancestry, their grandparents, and, and envisioning what a Puerto Rico once was. A lot of exciting stories were actually envisioning what the future of Puerto Rico could look like, because many of us are very optimistic that Puerto Rico can take this opportunity to rebuild itself and actually introduce new measures, new infrastructures, and more than more importantly, one of the things that was magnificent about this project was the outpouring of support, not only from the Puerto Rican community on the island, but across the United States and beyond the Puerto Rican community. And because so many people, like uh, in the comic book industry, like Bill Sienkiewicz or or Frank Miller or Greg Pak or Gail Simone, who are not Latinx um, heritage are as concerned about these issues because they just see it as what it is, as a humanitarian crisis. And they contributed their art and they contributed their beautiful stories to this as well.
0: With me is Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez, the man behind La Kenya, the Puerto Rican superhero. And she is teaming up with lots of D.C. superheroes in Reconstruction, reminiscing, and rebuilding Puerto Rico. Its proceeds all go to Reconstruction in Puerto Rico. Each Monday during hurricane season, Worldview presents a series called Puerto Reconstruction. Each week, we'll discuss life in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and the recovery efforts. You know, there is so much Puerto Rican history that most people in the United States don't know about. It seems like your character is a vehicle to bring a lot of that in. And I know, you know, it's been 120 years since the U.S. Do you think that Hurricane Maria is changing the dialogue in the U.S. about Puerto Rico? I imagine when you go around and talk to university students and things, you're having different conversations now?
3: Certainly. I think what Puerto Rico went through seven months ago, actually eight months ago, when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Not only did the hurricane wipe the island of so much uh, vegetation, so many homes were blown away and destroyed, but it also revealed and blew away this uh, guise of what the status of Puerto Rico has been for the last uh, 100 years. Puerto Ricanos on the island actually have referred to themselves as a el Estado Libre Asociado, a freely associated state. But in reality, they've always been a territory of the United States. Puerto Ricans on the island have never referred to themselves as a territory, but under These austerity measures that were created by PROMESA and under the effects of Hurricane Maria, they're really facing and feeling what it feels like to be an actual colony. And I think what's happening is a real dialogue about the decolonization of Puerto Rico. When it comes to um, the status of Puerto Rico being a state or an independent country, that it has always been a rather polarizing conversation on the island and here in the United States. But the one thing that is actually being discussed on both sides of the conversation is the necessity for decolonization. The current status quo is not working anymore. It's very clear. So pro-statehoods are pushing adamantly for becoming a state. And those in favor of independence are pushing favorably and forcefully towards independence, which was very much evident on May 1st. Uh, A massive march that occurred in Puerto Rico, a march that was uh, organized to raise awareness to the austerity measures that were affecting children, families, schools. Uh, This was not an independence um, demonstration as those in the past. This was actual people facing human rights violations. Their homes were being taken away from them. Their schools are being taken away from them. Their hospitals are being taken away from them, and they wanted to vocalize that, exercise, as American citizens, their First Amendment. And I think what this hurricane has done is truly opened the space, truly has done in a literal and in a kind of like philosophical way, introduce a clearing. And in this clearing, there is so much more room and so much clarity for an intense dialogue and intense discourse about the decolonization of Puerto Rico. and. It's interesting because it's like when you look at the debates about around statehood and, and independence, I try to remind people that if Puerto Rico ever becomes a state, you have to look at the state of the union where it is right now. Mississippi has been for decades the poorest state in the union. And Puerto Rico right now per capita income has been half that of Mississippi. And now as a result of the economy collapsing, is even less than that. And Hawaii being a state since the 1950s, you know, when we see Hawaii, all we see are these beautiful pictures. We don't actually see these struggling, low-income communities, which tend to be the majority of Hawaii. And it's interesting because on the island, so many people are unaware of their history because they don't learn Puerto Rican history in school. They learn American history. They learn about George Washington. They don't even learn about their previous governors in um, Puerto Rico. And one of the things I'm actually doing with my comic book, my second issue of La Borinquena, um, released on June 10th, the 80th anniversary of the Puerto Rican gag law, which outlawed the Puerto Rican flag. So it's so much history that's happening right now, like so many significant dates that are coming up. So It's just doing the work for Hurricane Maria is so important, but the work continues, bro. The work continues.
0: Do you think it kind of goes back to Congress? Everything about Puerto Rico goes back to Congress eventually, and the control board that's putting on these austerity measures is created by Congress. And the dialogue eventually has to change there for status to change. You said you were optimistic, but it's been like that for forever. And Congress just doesn't seem to budge on the Puerto Rico issue.
3: You're right. They haven't budged on it for 100 years. And it doesn't matter what party line, whether they're Democratic or Republican, they've never budged. PROMESA was created under uh, President Obama, Um, Hurricane Maria occurred under um, President Trump. Tax code 936 was closed by um, President Clinton. So it doesn't matter which party is in power here in the United States. Both have overlooked blatantly um, the role and the position in the future of Puerto Rico. But I have to be optimistic because that's why I create superhero tales, (laughs) because I believe in the human spirit. I believe that um, we are stronger and bigger than our reality sometimes, and we have the potential to go beyond that. And over the course of the last 13 years since um, the uh, tax code was closed, which inevitably led to the uh, collapse of the Puerto Rican economy, and now with Hurricane Maria... What we've seen is a massive exodus, and it's already projected, especially by the Center for Puerto Rican Studies here in New York City, that by 2019, the Puerto Rican population will be about 2.8 million on the island. That will be a drop of 1 million, meaning in the last 13 years, 1 million Puerto Ricans have migrated, have moved here to the United States. And that is increasing the population. So there will be double the amount of Puerto Ricans living in the United States in the history of the United States. So you're looking at over 6 million Puerto Ricans that will be living here between now and next year. And that's going to create an incredible, incredible movement in midterm elections and in the next presidential elections because we don't forget. And one thing that I've learned about my family and my heritage is that we are resilient people. We have undergone um, 100 years of colonialism and even before that, 400 years of colonialism under the Spanish empire, Um, but we're still here. And our culture and our language and our heritage continues to blossom and continues to be celebrated. And now we have a superhero that flies alongside Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman, icons that have been around for close to a century. And she's there to not only remind them that we are presente, but that we are not going anywhere.
0: Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez is the man behind La Boring Kenya. And you can see her with lots of D.C. superheroes in Reconstruction. It's reminiscing and rebuilding Puerto Rico. Its proceeds all go to Reconstruction in Puerto Rico. Thanks a lot for joining us.
3: Thank you. Gracias.
0: Thanks to Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. We'll be back next week with another edition of our Puerto Construction series where we feature people who are helping rebuild Puerto Rico. Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez is part of our recent series, Beyond Black Panther, where we featured pathbreaking, black and Latinx comic book writers and how they view the world, their art, and their industry. You can see their work and hear these artists on our webpage at wbez.org slash worldview comics. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with Slate's Joshua Keating. His new book is called Invisible Countries. It talks about the states and nations we don't see very often, not because they're small or unnewsworthy, but because everybody has a different definition for what makes a country or nation. So on the eve of Independence Day, we'll ask, what really makes a country independent? Stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Shazmin Hussein and Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.